Well, one of, a, one of the things of this morning that Tyler and I will share in common, although I've neglected, I said, oh yeah, I meant to, you know, everybody's heard that old joke, but uh, I forgot to say it at 8 a.m. service, but, you know, the, the Pharisees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Y'all get that? You didn't laugh very hard. <laughs> okay, all right. That's okay. It's, it's not a very good joke, I mean, really. Um, so we have two kind of compelling worldviews offered, one from Haggai, a little-known Old Testament prophet, and the other, uh, Jesus, wrestling with the Sadducees, um, really arm-wrestling with them, and they're just trying to undermine his ministry, undermine his, undermine his life, because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They give an absolutely absurd question to him about a woman who marries seven times. And uh, so... Um, it, to me, as I do from time to time, I think it's a better to pick one or the other, not try to preach about both, except to say this about the gospel, is I believe the experience of heaven is so qualitatively rich that the reason Jesus says you don't understand about heaven and it's not about marriage, it's not that you won't be married to your loved one there, but I think what it, it means in this story, what Jesus is getting at is that the quality of all your relationships with everybody in heaven will have the same richness and loveliness and beauty as the relationship that a husband and wife have in a great marriage. And so it all gets elevated, all the relationships, and each marriage that we have here on earth is a foretaste, and each great marriage that we witness here on earth is a foretaste of the heaven's relationships of being just incredibly rich and good. But what I'd like to do primarily is speak to the prophet Haggai's word today. And it will help be helpful, especially this morning, if you use your Bible. You can use an iPhone or an iPad if you happen to have that, but certainly the, there's a red Bible right in your pew as well. And I believe it's on page 668 or 667. If I didn't give you the page number, you would be in big trouble and we'd be here about 20 minutes while you found Haggai. Because uh, he's about two pages of the Old Testament He's buried in the midst of those 12 minor prophets that we have been looking at in our life group, some of them, and uh, he's not easy to find. So if you've got that page, is Haggai there? Did I give you the right page number? Are we close? 668, okay. And um, now before we start reading that, let me give you the backdrop. And what I suspect, it's so hard to even listen to a reading like this out of context when we just hear it kind of swoosh, swoosh I mean. Uh, into a, you know, a Sunday morning uh, environment like this. So let's, give it, let's build a foundation for this story and then see what we can glean from it. And the foundation is this. Haggai is written, we know for a fact, from his book in the fall of 520 B.C. Between August and December, he had four prophetic words to offer to the, to the Jewish community. And so he had a, his lifespan as a prophet that we have recorded is only four months and only four messages that he has to deliver. Where were the Jews in 520 B.C.? Go back 66 years to 586 B.C., 66 years before, about two generations, and you will recall that that was the, the time of the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, burned and sacked, and the destruction of the temple that had been in place for over 500 years, and it was gone, reduced to rubble. 
and the people of Israel were exiled, exported from their homeland, lost their homes, their property, and everything, and were sent out, sent away. In those 66 years, the Assyrian ruler that had exiled them and exported them, he himself lost battles, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, became the new chief or head of that region. I mean, he was the new big kid on the block. And Cyrus, in 538, sent the Jewish people back to their homeland and authorized them to rebuild the temple. Cyrus had a high interest in world religions, and it was okay with him if the Jews wanted to rebuild the temple. They began in 538, and within two years, there was serious opposition to those who did not like the Jews and building the construction of the temple in the midst of all the conflict and the opposition began to um, be diminished until it finally completely ceased in 530 B.C., 10 years before Haggai now. So a decade passes where a foundation for the glorious temple has been laid, but not much more. And Haggai is given a word from God to God's people then. He's not the only one. Zechariah, another little-known minor prophet who is right next door to Haggai in the Old Testament. If you can ever find Haggai, then you can find Zechariah. And if you can ever find Zechariah, you can find Haggai. They both are speaking around 520 B.C., although Zechariah speaks for a longer period of time than those four months. So, God wants his people to hear something, and although God doesn't often speak from his heavenly throne room audibly for us to hear, although there is certainly testimony and witness to that having happened to individuals, oftentimes God will speak to his people through persons, through his people. God will speak to his people through his people. And so here we have Haggai, whom we don't know much about, except God gave him a word and to Zechariah, and God gave him a word, and it's about a very practical issue. Interesting, because it tells us that God cares about things on earth. God cares about his community of faith. God cares about what we are doing and not doing, even about bricks and mortar. And this is a story ostensibly about bricks and mortar, but what God knows and we need to learn is that this is a story also about the restoration and renewal of the spirits and hearts of the people as they resolve to build the temple again. Now the good news is that temple is finally completed and it stands for another 500 years until the days of Jesus. And we also know from history that the second temple as it's named and identified is uh, also destroyed in 70 A.D., and the third temple has never been built. And the Jews believe, and many Christians believe, that when the third temple is built, it promises the, the very uh, soon return of Jesus, Messiah. The Jews believe Messiah will come, and the Christians believe Messiah will come for a second time because he's already come, we know, and we give witness to. So let's look at this story now with that kind of background, 
And let's look first at chapter 1. This, I hope this won't take too long. I don't think it will. In the second year of King Darius, Darius has succeeded Cyrus as king of Persia. On the first day of the sixth month, that's an August date, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Not Haggai's opinion he's offering. He doesn't all of a sudden have a personal conviction of what he thinks ought to be done. The word comes to Haggai from the Lord that he is to deliver to the people. Now, bless Randy Sharpie's heart, our, reading this our reader this morning. Uh, this is one of those readings that makes readers not want to be scheduled for a morning like this, pronouncing these words, and he did obviously very well. But uh, the prophet Haggai, and the, the word goes to three groups or individuals, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. I know those are ha the hard names for me to say also, but he's the political uh, leader. He's the governor, as he's called here. Um, he's the governor of Judah. He's the uh, political leader in place. And also to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So the word comes to the political leader who has influence as the, uh, the governor and to the religious leader who has influence as, if you will, the high priest. And here is what the word is. These people say... The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. The people say the time has not yet come. Ten years have gone by, and they're still saying the time has not yet come for God's house to be built. There's too much opposition, and there's apathy and lethargy as well in the people themselves. In fact, the people think the problem is external to them. It's those folks who were opposing us for the last 15 years. And part of this prophecy will disclose that the larger and greater problem is your own attitude and your own heart. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. But here's the word that Haggai has from the Lord. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? They'd return in 586. They'd had almost two generations to establish themselves. And they were finally getting traction again, owning their own property, restoring or building their own homes, while the temple was left as a back burner project. While this house, the temple, remains a ruin, is that how you prioritize your life, in other words? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. And then from verse 5 to verse 11, he simply says, there are consequences for disobedience and there are rewards for obedience. And he said, part of what you are witnessing in your life, inclusive of your apathy and lethargy, this spiritual sickness, if you will, is the consequence of disobedience. And Haggai will promise as well, and Zechariah as well, but there are rewards for your obedience too. So we get to the 12th verse with that as backdrop. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua and the whole remnant of the people they had a spiritual renewal obeyed they said yes Lord first things first yes Lord your house not ours your place your temple where we give honor to you is first and foremost 
the back burner issue becomes a front burner priority. They obeyed. So verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. God will never call you out to do something difficult and leave you standing alone. The next word, which shows up in Scripture over and over and over again in times of a difficult challenge ahead for an individual, Moses, Abraham, Jesus himself, or to community, this sort of word is given, and he means it. I am with you. Oh, not by ourselves, not by our own strength, but by your spirit, as Jeremiah prophesied once upon a time. Oh, I am with you. And in the midst of this prophetic word and this, um, the prophetic word spoken and the hearts of the people being convicted, there is renewal and transformation. So verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of their political leader, Zerubbabel, stirred up the spirit of Joshua, their religious leader, and perhaps most important of all, it had a widespread impact and stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They began and began to work on the house of the Lord. And then we come to our reading of today with that as backdrop. All right, let me put this aside for a moment, and we'll get back to the chapter 2 at the conclusion and say, offer a couple of thoughts about how this might impact your life and my life directly. The value of knowing the Bible. We teach at St. Paul's whenever we have an opportunity that our first and primary resource for spiritual and practical guidance, the practical do we build this building or not? Our primary and first resource for spiritual and practical guidance is Scripture. Now that comes out of the Anglican history and the Anglican tradition, and it was clarified and most enriched by a fellow living in the 16th century named Richard Hooker, who wrote, I can hardly pronounce the title, and I cannot read his Middle English writing or his... Uh, not Middle English, but that Shakespeare, his is Shakespearean, but it's, it, it is a highfalutin philosophical English language of the 16th century. Richard Hooker wrote this in his five-volume work, which, thanks be to God, I did not have to read in seminary either, but if you ever have to get a PhD, there's a good chance you may have to read the whole thing and have some comprehension of it. But it is a brilliant foundation-laying work for all Anglican thought and belief that we have today. So it's an, it's an amazing contribution in the history of our lives. And he wrote this about scripture and about our own way of finding guidance. He said, what scripture doth plainly deliver to that the first place both of credit and obedience is due. He's saying scripture is to be our primary resource for spiritual and practical guidance. That there is clarity of direction through the Bible. What scripture doth plainly deliver to that the first place both of credit and obedience is due. 
But he went further and said, The next whereunto is what any man can necessarily conclude by force of reason. He's saying, and as you're trying to make a decision about a way forward, yes to scripture, first and foremost, but think as well. Use your head, reason, consider what is reasonable, and you can't even say in light of the scripture that you know and have. And then thirdly, he says, after this, the voice of the church succeeded. You can express that in different ways, but part of it say that what is the tradition of the church? What has been the tradition of the church on this position? So the very familiar confirmation class way of summarizing this is we Anglicans believe for direction in scripture, tradition, and reason. We got it out of order. Hooker has scripture, reason, and tradition. And later, in later years, and later in his laws of ecclesiastical polity, he will acknowledge and experience is a great teacher as well. Put your hand on a hot burner, it's a great experience to learn what not to do, in other words. So what he's given us here is this framework for how we are to make our way forward through difficult circumstances. What do I do? Should I do this or should I do that? Scripture is our primary reference point for spiritual and practical guidance. Think, common sense, wrestle with this. And the tradition of the church, which I would offer as another way of saying that is the counsel of others, is don't do it on your own. Seek out the wisdom of the church and the wisdom of others and say, what would you do? Here's the pros and here's the cons. What do you think? Back to the second chapter of Haggai. He's given a first prophetic word. We heard that in summary fashion. Today's word was a second prophetic word. And he's speaking to a very particular practical issue. Work had stopped on the construction of the second temple. Something God knows his people need. They know it. And he knows as well... Haggai does, that we're speaking to a heart issue as well because the reason the building is not being built is because of the attitude and behavior and, if you will, the apathy and loss of enthusiasm of the people. So in this second chapter of Haggai, pressing forward, verse 3, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Do you remember, or do you remember from your grandparents who were living in the time of the first temple, its glory? Don't you want to reclaim that and her beauty for your own spiritual lives? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong. Looking back in order to press forward. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua, verse 4. Be strong, all you people of the land. It's a great Hebrew word. I can't really, I can't, uh, uh, I cannot, uh, I don't know exactly what the Hebrew word is, so I can't tell you what it is, but it means be strong, be of good courage. It can be even more dynamic in just saying courage. Courage, Zerubbabel. Courage, Joshua. Courage, people of God. One translation of this word is win. Just win. That's a good competitive way of expressing it. Go for it. Win. And again, for I am with you, 
This is what I covenant with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So what happens after an 18-year project which had come to a dead standstill 10 years ago with nothing going on within four years the temple is completely completed, furnished, and in use in four years. They did it. They did it. And there's not only the personal satisfaction of seeing the glorious second temple, which stood on the Temple Mount, there is that sense of heart satisfaction of being in God's will and in his purposes, and a sense of uh, overcoming the apathy and the, the discouragement, and they've got a new victory story to tell. So what is here for us? Well, as I said, when you find yourself in a particularly difficult place, as an individual, as a group, a family, or we as a community, when we find ourselves in a particularly difficult place, we have the wisdom of the ages and the wisdom of Scripture that tells us this. Go to Scripture Look to the Bible for direction and instruction in those stories that now can be taken on as our stories. Reason, think, actively think and wrestle with the problem because there is the potential, the expectation of resolution and tradition, what others have done in times past because there's really not anything new on earth. Your problems nor mine are not new as well. They're just new to us. What have others done in the wisdom of God and Scripture to get through this dilemma? So, brothers and sisters, simply a word of encouragement or exhortation today. Let your primary resource, not only for spiritual guidance, but for practical guidance as well, parenting, your marriage, making a business decision, do I sell this, do I keep it, do I launch this business, do I not launch this business? Let those kinds of practical issues also, let the Bible guide you. Search out the treasures of Scripture, and the more you embrace Scripture and use it in a day-to-day, week-to-week fashion, the more you know where to search it out, or go to someone who also is ahead of you in that journey and says, where can I find guidance about this? And let it, Scripture, and especially Him, through Scripture, speak into your circumstances. And then do what the people in 520 did. They did it. They started. They began. They stepped out and had their reward. That doing it is called, under another heading, obedience. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And see if there is not a reward at the end of that journey. There are consequences, Haggai tells in that first chapter, to our disobedience. There is rewards, however, for our obedience. Just picking out another minor prophet in a different context a bit, but I believe that this could be held out as universally true for our lives. Malachi 3.10, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. They received their blessing 
in their decision to obey God's word to rebuild the temple, and they have their reward. What can we say in conclusion? In the long run, faithfulness and obedience are always rewarded. And as a corollary, faithlessness and disobedience has its own negative consequences. Haggai gives witness to that, as well as other parts of Scripture. Let us learn wisely and learn well the way of faithfulness and obedience for our lives. Amen.